Hello, and welcome to Site Visit, a podcast dedicated to engaging architecture everywhere. I'm Ashley Bigham, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Herman. Eric, what do we do on this podcast? We visit a site, and then we talk about it. Exactly. Each episode of Site Visit begins with a visit to an architectural site chosen by the guest and follows with a conversation centered on the experience. To keep up with the latest or to see photos from these site visits, follow us on Instagram, that's at sitevisitpod, or visit sitevisitpod.com. Today we are joined by Paul Anderson, the Director of Independent Architecture. Paul teaches at the University of Illinois at Chicago and previously taught at the Ditella, the Harvard GSD, and Cornell University. He has been a guest curator at the MCA Denver and the Biennial of the Americas, a Fulbright specialist in architecture and is the author of The Architecture of Patterns and Curve Culture. On today's site visit, we return to Colorado and discuss our visit to the U.S. Air Force Academy campus located in Colorado Springs. Built between 1958 and 1968, the campus spans almost 200,000 acres of land on the east side of the Rocky Mountains, about 60 miles south of Denver. Designed by Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill, the U.S. Air Force Academy campus abandons the traditional architectural styles typical of the country's other military academy buildings and instead embraces a modernist approach. The massiveness of the campus, along with the austerity and simplicity of its buildings, speaks to the messaging the U.S. Air Force Academy and the country as a whole sought to display during the nation's post-World War II era. Paul's interest in the campus ranges from how its material characteristics relate to the surrounding environment to the influence national politics had over the Academy's design. The Air Force Academy campus, along with Colorado's role in contemporary architectural discourse, have inspired much of Paul's interests and work. We began by asking Paul to introduce the history of the Colorado campus and to describe some of its most notable features. We just finished a kind of lo- very long day of... <laughs> might be our longest site visit. <laughs> this may be our longest site visit ever, but I think it was really great and we wouldn't have wanted it to be any shorter. But um, Paul, can you tell us where we went today and a little bit about the site? So we uh, drove down to the United States Air Force Academy, which is a complex of buildings that was um, designed by SOM, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. Big architecture firm from Chicago. For the most part, the original campus is a huge quad on an artificial mesa with a cadet chapel, which is the most iconic and probably best known building set just above the quad. So we went down to see those buildings and uh, got a nice tour from from a friend of a friend, Steve, who um, you know took us took us through a lot of areas that the public normally can't see and that I've never seen before. So so that was a real pleasure. Yeah. So the um, the Air Force Academy, it's as you mentioned, it's um, designed by SO. But not all at one time, right? So there are uh, kind of stages of the project. It was a kind of master plan with several buildings and the chapel, which is, as you said, the most iconic building today, probably. Actually, it, it definitely is because we kept seeing pictures and images of the chapel all around campus in corridors, in elevators. It seems to be a kind of icon for the academy itself. But it kind of happened in stages, and the chapel was the last building. But 
then even they have a very recent edition also by SOM. It's a, a firm which is still active today. Um, and so maybe we could talk about just, just a little bit of that kind of history and chronology. It was an important project at the time that it was conceived and built for a number of reasons. And, and you know, one of them was that it was you know the first service academy that had been that in a, in, in a while. You know, Annapolis and West Point were well established. They'd been around for, for some time. Um, you know, but following World War II, the Air Force was really seen as, as the ascendant branch of the military. Um, you know, very technologically advanced, and so there was uh, you know there was there was a lot of pressure on the project to be on the one hand a symbol of that power and that technology and of the military uh, and to be progressive in that regard um, and at the same time it was a kind of a tenuous moment for modern architecture because there had been some examples some things had been built but they were you know very you know sort of hotly contested projects that you know people in the architecture world and in general, kind of came down on different sides of what you know modernism really could be, whether it was you know what its value could be, what its weaknesses were. So it was a you know it was a kind of pivotal moment for the for the movement as well. And um, the history is you know sort of surprisingly dramatic actually for this project. <laughs> um, it started in uh, you know as early as 1949. The the in 48 49 the Air Force was already talking about having a, an academy, like adding another you know another military academy, and they were talking about how, what they would need to build in order for that to be you know you know to, to house that kind of that new academy. So as early as 48 or 49, the Air Force was already discussing the new military academy and what it should be like, and you know it. it and through the through the course of its early development, there's a kind of surprising number of well-known figures from architecture and related fields that get involved in it. And even in that you know in that initial stage, they did a site search, and um, you know that site search was run by Holliburton and Root. Um, and so you know you have this like old Chicago firm yeah. that's already like trying to like you know it's, it's involved in helping them t- you know try to narrow their site selection. They ended up. You know, not selecting a site right then, and it was a, it was a few years later. It wasn't in, until '54 that they actually had a second committee that was put together. And on that committee, one of the you know, one of the key members was Charles Lindbergh, who you know was like you know somehow still around. And uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, he was uh, you know really actually instrumental in choosing the sites. They had they came up with a list at first of 582 sites around the country wow. that they quickly narrowed to 67. And they visited all 67 of those sites, the, this, this full committee, um, either on the ground or by air. They either flew over them or they actually drove to them and, and, and checked them out. And the finalists were uh, Randolph Air Force Base, which is in Texas, which is where the training for for uh, the Air Force had been taking place up to that point. Uh, and there were some people who thought that's you know, felt very strongly from the from the beginning that that's that should be expanded and made into the academy. Um, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, was another one. Alton, Illinois, and then the Colorado Springs site that that we went to today. And uh, there's no real um, evidence that Eisenhower, who was president, um, you know, was was you know, had influence over it, but for sure, as soon as the Colorado site was chosen, he expressed some 
relief that that was the side that was chosen because he had some strong roots in Colorado. Like he, he spent a lot of time here. Um, his wife, Mamie, had uh, relatives in Colorado, and so he had a soft spot for Colorado, and I guess he was really happy that that was, that was what was chosen in the end. And then, you know, immediately that same year, so, you know, they, in 1954, they're, they're choosing the site, but they're also choosing the architects right away, and they went through a, you know, a process. They, they solicited submissions um, and, uh, you know, narrowed that list down to a number of finalists that same year also. And the finalists at that point, besides SOM, the firm that, you know, designed it ultimately, um, were a group called the Kitty Hawk Associates, which included Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, Aero Saarinen, um, Wallace Harrison was, was one of them. Pietro Beluski, who was the the head at MIT at the time, and uh, Pereira and Luckman, and that they were all the finalists. And um, you know, there were, for various reasons, like different those different ones of those firms, like kind of like fell out at some point or another. And really, in the end, it came down to Kitty Hawk Associates and SOM. Um, one of the big draws of SOM was that they had in-house engineering, and the military thought that was really important. They had done you know other projects projects and they felt from a project management standpoint that was a really big deal that they that they had a kind of single point of contact for the bulk of the project. Of course they had to work with you know specialty engineers on, on some things, but structural, civil, some you know that kind of stuff was was in-house. Uh, and, and another key factor in them winning was that Frank Lloyd Wright refused to go to Washington DC to, to be part of the presentation. <laughs> Because he sent a telegram that said something to the effect of, uh, you know, everybody, you know, knows who I am and what I can do in architecture already. And if the selection committee is not aware of, of my capabilities, I just feel sorry for them. So, wow. you know, so, you know, they weren't chosen. And he'll, he'll come back into the story in a bit anyway. But, uh you know, the SOM was had a had a pretty good um, list of, of projects that, that that they had already completed. It worked either directly with the military on, or there were similar kinds of projects, and they they had uh, designed Atom City, which was you know the Atomic Energy Commission's basically like a full blown city in Oak Ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they, they completed that. They designed a postgraduate school for the U.S. Navy in Monterey, California, and that had gone well. And um, in their presentation, also interestingly enough, uh, they didn't present a, a schematic design when they were, you know, when, when in Washington, when the finalists all presented. They actually presented... Um, a work progress chart that more or less gave the schedule and who would be responsible for what and how the team, you know, the different members of the team would work together, you know, who, who they would be in contact with in, you know, in the Air Force. And so, you know, they basically said, like, we know how to handle a project of this magnitude mm-hmm. and this complexity um, rather than giving, you know, presenting a design which could have gone any number of ways in terms of its evaluation as well. So, um, I don't know, I, you know, many of us have done competitions, <laughs> like it's kind of, you know, I don't these days we think of SOM as like you know it's a kind of like corporate monster. I do at least like a corporate kind of like monster office uh, that's very mainstream. But you know I think that was pretty outside the box competition wise at the time to you know not present design but to present a diagram more or less. Um, 
So. It, yeah, it sounds it's, like it's also a case of they maybe knew their client really well. Fascinating right? insight you know? into like who would love an org chart yeah, like, yeah. more than a <laughs> yeah. more than a service branch. That's brilliant. Yeah. 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 yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, they knew their they did know their client well. Actually, the whole project was designed pretty quickly. I, I think that the, the first class that actually that attended school there did so between in the year like 58, 59. So, you know, they graduated in 59 on campus. So, you know, it was only maybe three, three and a half years, something like that, 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 that took them to get most of the construction done, which is pretty remarkable because it's a huge project. Um, it's, you know, a series of uh, six-story uh, rectilinear buildings, largely steel and glass, um, asymmetrically organized around an, an enormous quad that they call the terrazzo. Um, the six-story buildings, you see the six stories from the outside of it because the whole thing is built into a hillside, um, you know, just like right at the base of the Rocky Mountains. And so, um, you know, on the on the west side of that, where the mountains rise up, it's on grade basically. But as but then the the whole quad is like this giant artificial plateau that extends per projects out from the base of the mountains over the lower prairie below. Which by the time you get to the other side, is six plus stories actually lower than the. Or I'm sorry, it's like three three plus stories lower than the the quad itself. The buildings are on the on the terrazzo side, like when you're in, inside the quad. Are only three stories tall, and the bottom story is mostly open. It's you know the, the buildings sit on sort of small uh, circulation cores where they have they have stairs and elevators in them. Um, so it's really like a two-story building hovering over the, this huge you know deck, like this huge plane um, of the terrazzo itself. So they look kind of small, actually, uh, at least in terms of height on, on that side. Whereas if you're outside it, they're, you know, six stories. It's, it's really like, a, they're, they're much bigger. And because they're also very, very long buildings. Um, so even though they're not tall, they're horizontally, they, you know, they're... We yeah, were, yeah, pretty big. No, just to, uh, we were in a corridor at one point when our guide said that the corridor we were in was a quarter of a mile exactly, <laughs> right? So yeah. that just that one hallway was a quarter of a mile. So that the scale is really impressive, and yeah. the uh, the terrazzo, the um, kind of quad plaza that you're talking about, is also really huge. And that you know one reason is that they have um, four thousand cadets there at once, and so um, the entire uh, student body, or you know, the entire group of cadets need to be able to assemble on the quad at one time. They need to be able to go to lunch all at one time. So even the lunchroom is giant. Um, everything's on the kind of scale that they could move as one kind of unit or group. Yeah. And it, it's, it's really, it really is sort of hard to, hard to understand how big it is. I mean, I think that's, you know, one of, one of the reasons why I chose it was because it's it's one of the place one of a handful of places I've been to where I think just studying the drawings and the photos and the models and all that kind of stuff like doesn't really do it justice. Like you actually have to you know see it in person to to understand the scale of it, which doesn't mean it's a bad choice for a podcast <laughs> because there's plenty of interesting things to talk about. But I guess I'm saying it because if anybody ever you know who's listening ever has a chance to to go see it, I think it's well worth it because it's really astounding how you know how how massive it is and it's really a, a unique project I think in terms of that um, in terms of its size so um, 
Yeah, and and you know it's it's also an incredibly uh, austere um, sensibility. You know, the project has. I mean, the 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 facades are flat. Um, they're you know con- very consistent, repetitious, organized on a module that carries across the you know the the plaza itself or the, the terrazzo. Um, they are. Uh, you know, and, and that austerity is um, made even more striking, I think, is like exaggerated by the fact that it's a military academy. So, yeah. you know, you kind of end up with this, you know, like not only is it a kind of like almost blank but and, and really stripped down architecture, but it's in, you know, in a on a campus where you have no trash cans or benches or blue light phones or anything like that. So, you, you, you know, it's just like the... The discipline of the architecture and of the you know the service academy are just unbelievably well aligned. I think, and, and when you're there, yeah, I think that's the, the thing that was really like most striking to me, like these this notion of its kind of monumental presence because it is a campus in, in in multiple ways. So I think like just to maybe circle back to our experience today, like one of the first things you understand immediately on the approach is that this is not just like a college campus, it's also a military base. Like it has yeah. several identities overlaid on top of each other. And I think today we ended up talking at a lot of times about the kind of ambiguity of where it seems to slip. It's sometimes feeling like it has uh, elements of a college campus and there are other times when you can't forget that you're on a, on a site that trains um, uh, people for, for warfare. So it's yeah. a, so on the approach, like the first impression of the site is actually the security presence. Yeah. So so we drove up, and there was a security checkpoint. Um, yeah. Pretty pretty typical. Uh, you know, uh, they kind of checked our IDs, and then we kind of proceeded on. And I think I wasn't. Um, I didn't have an appreciation for the scale of the site that we were going to see because I only know it through the iconic chapel, which mm-hmm. I have to say is, is really dwarfed by the rest of the complex. It's quite a little nice ornament on a much, much larger campus. So we went through security, and then after that we um, ended up in a kind of visitor's parking lot, right? Uh, and then we, the first kind of threshold of the campus is this really amazing administrative wing, which has the language of the rest of the complex, but it's just kind of floating over. That takes you right into the central terrazzo space. Yeah. And we should talk a little bit about this kind of just monumental void that makes up the heart of the campus. Yeah, the terrazzo is a massive quad. Um, it's so big that there's a there's a hill in the middle of it that that I you know I've been there many times before and um, I had no idea what that hill was for. In fact, I actually kind of you know secretly cursed it whenever I saw it because I was it always seemed like you know why isn't this it just seems like this unbelievable yeah. just yeah. like massive flat plain like why do they have a bump in the middle because there's there's a grass there's a large grass area in the middle. I should explain that. I yeah. guess. Yeah. And and it turns out that bump is there because the whole the whole terrazzo is so big that they needed to break up wind. And if it wasn't there, the wind would be too strong through the through the middle of it. Um, I mean, the bump, despite the fact that it's there, is really it, it's, it's pretty big. Actually, I think it's what, what would you say? I guess one or two stories high. I mean, it's pretty, least, pretty, yeah, pretty it's big, pretty yeah. sizable. Yeah. But it's it's also all you know not it doesn't define the the terrazzo at all either. Mm-hmm. It, but yeah, it's I mean it's it's a really huge space. And and around the perimeter of the terrazzo are these you know these kind of low buildings. Um, again, open for the most part at the ground level with two stories above them, and. Uh, 
the 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 um, they in those buildings there are courtyards and you know sort of there are lots of different levels some of which are are huge like three story courtyards that go all the way down to you know the the ground level outside the terrazzo and from a distance like when you're standing by the chapels or overlooking the entire thing you you don't even you can hardly even register you, you can hardly even see those those parts like yeah. difficult to see yeah. so you know if you can imagine a space that's so big that a large three-story courtyard is kind of like a minor detail. Um, <laughs> that's that's you know where that's, we're where, that's where that's yeah. where we were. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's the entire complex is really insistent on the um, on the kind of horizon line in a really interesting way, and I mean, maybe that makes mm-hmm. is, is a kind of is the kind of right <laughs> connection uh, to the to the to the to the to the context um, and it's really striking because the chapel is the only kind of vertical element yeah. everything else is completely delineated through a kind of a horizon line everything yeah um, very it's very flat um, and it's very insistent on this kind of linearity and what's interesting is that although the buildings change in their profile moving away from the terrazzo they all meet the terrazzo basically in the same identical line yeah. so you'll have a, a series of dorms but also then some like the mess hall all fronting the terrazzo in the same way but offering completely different spatial typologies once you make your way out of that central courtyard and those buildings are almost indistinguishable from each other too which i thought was interesting we would walk by a building and our guide would say okay this is a dorm and you could tell maybe just by the windows and that some windows were open and you might see one or two cadets walking around but it looked strikingly identical to a building which was filled with classrooms and faculty offices for example so there was a kind of modularity that runs throughout and then of course um, I mean I think that horizontality of all of those buildings even though they're really large they have three to four story courtyards and um, they're six stories tall um, but because the terrazzo is elevated they seem very horizontal and then I think you really I mean I started to really appreciate the chapel actually when we walked away from it when we walked to the other side of the terrazzo and we looked Mm. back at the chapel because looking back at the chapel um, the mountains are right behind it. Yeah. So when you're on um, the kind of parking lot side where we entered, you see the chapel really stands out amongst the kind of flat horizon. But then when you look back, actually the chapel really needs to be so vertical. Yeah. It needs to be that tall to kind of hold its own presence against a mountain, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it seems to be operating on like a kind of medieval notion of monumentality with its verticalness. And it just occurs to me, I, I hadn't thought about this earlier, but essentially the kind of uh, the kind of complementary move in modernism is the horizontal span as kind of like technological achievement. So yeah. when you go into this uh, mess hall and there's a 266 foot span, it's just unbelievably jaw-dropping. The ceiling actually isn't that high. It's just all about that expanse. Yeah. And that being the kind of... At the time, the, the that was the engineering feat, and this was the kind of statement of monumentality for modernism is the span, which I think is really celebrated in this complex in a fascinating way. Yeah, I mean, monumentality, like the idea of a monument and you know how to, how to make the project a monument, I think was a huge challenge to, uh, you know, to SOM at the time. And... and uh, in particular, Walter Natch, who was the 
you know, the lead designer on the project um, out of the office in Chicago. I mean, you know, SOM had uh, like uh, different people who did different things on the project. And some of them were more general project managers, which just oversaw the, you know, the the production of the work. Um, Nesh was the head of all of the design. Um, okay. Gordon Bunshaft, who's also a well, you know, well-known architect from that office, was working out of the New York office at that time and was a design consultant internally in the office. Um, but Nesh was really you know, running, running the show. And he, um, you know, I think there was, a, there was pressure, you know, again, like coming out of World War II and, and entering into the Cold War, which by, you know, mid-50s was, you know, was, was in full swing. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of, of pressure on them to show the power of the military through it. And, um, you know, normally in architecture that would be done symbolically, but modernism was trying to, at the same time, to avoid any kind of symbolic reference so on one hand he's working with this you know he had this this dilemma i think of how to design a modern project but a modern project that could uh symbolize you know the the power of the military and of the air force specifically at that time i mean and then there's other problems of monument too like you know like you mentioned there's this huge, like very dramatic, you know, you know, mountain range, like directly adjacent, like right behind, basically, the, you know, the whole project is set at the foot of it. So how does how does a you know how do how do buildings compete with this you know the scale of the landscape was was you know for sure another problem that they tried to tried to deal with. And I mean, I think that the, in the end they they decided that you know the the form of the monument, the classical form of the monument, mm-hmm. as a, as a kind of visual reference to whatever it is it mon- was was monumentalizing or this symbol as a, an image of something that it was trying to symbolize. They they managed to avoid that and use size. I think mostly yeah. as the yeah. as you know as as the the show of force for for the military on the one hand and actually even to compete with the landscape. I mean, when you're, when you're in the terrazzo, you see in the distant horizon bits of landscape, but you, you know, as big as it is, you're still, because it's almost completely surrounded by these buildings, um, you know, you're still immersed in, in the campus somehow. about its kind of iconic presence on the quad or on the terrazzo, um, its verticality. Um, so we should also mention that it's um, it's a triangle. <laughs> it's, a, it's a triangle in elevation. So it's kind of a, an extruded um, triangle. It has, um, again, like a, a steel structure, which is uh, then kind of covered in a metal facade system. Um, it's kind of yeah, it's like a folded plate building that looks yeah. kind of like an accordion. Like if you took yeah. a triangle and you made it into an accordion, if it was a triangular accordion, <laughs> that's, then, that's pretty much. Then it, that's right? what you get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the so as with any chapel, the 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 main issue really once you've achieved the um, structurally the kind of space and clearances you need is the question of light. And this one has a pretty unique approach. Yeah. Well, they, they, they built uh, glass, some some t- just tinted, sort of a dark yellow, and some that's more like traditional stained glass, but kind of just in, in 
rectangular pieces, and they build all that into strips in between the panels. So it's not um, it's not like one window at the end of the church that's you know that, that's the stained glass window or or even you know like kind of apertures like punched in in the walls of the church, but it's it's pretty much like permeates the entire you know structure. So it's like very it's a very you know, you know geometric. Uh, building to begin with, you know, yeah. in terms of the the you know, like just like kind of the the makeup of the interior, but then those lines are reinforced by you know light, basically. Yeah, because when you're inside, the allusions to maybe um, the coffering of a ceiling or kind of a gothic vaulting are, are there yeah. vaguely enough. Uh, but it really feels like the sun is just destroying the building and like cracking into every fissure possible, which um, in Denver seems quite appropriate. Um, there's just so much light yeah. that the chapel kind of um, letting the light become more cracks and fissures uh, makes a lot of sense. There's just no need to bring in much more than that because it's so yeah. intense, the yeah. ambient light here. I mean, I think that there's some other things about the building that are also very... I don't know if it's like context appropriate or how, you know how to how to put it. Maybe it's maybe it's just the I don't know. They they stand out as really strong strong features or qualities, and they, and in particular stand out because they seem very American. It seems like an like to me a, like in a, a sort of uniquely and you know strongly American project. Um, in a number of ways. I mean, first of all, the size. I mean, it's just it's it's got a scale that you you know you, that that seems to be sort of part of that landscape. I, mean, I guess in particular yeah. the American West in that case. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, at this point, you have to realize like the the like the enormity of this project. Like the, at the time on this project, I mean, I hate to like jump back to the history no, just for right. a minute. I mean, when, at the time that it was done, it was. Um, it was probably like the biggest, most famous, and closely followed commission in the world at, at that time. And you know, you realize that Congress is meeting on this, like as it's being designed, they're reviewing the design and they're bringing in people to, you know, advise them on whether this is good or not because you know they just weren't they weren't really sure. Again, this is like a kind of tenuous moment in architectural history where we weren't really comfortable with modernism yet. Um, and you know, that, like to the point where, for example, so after SOM designed the first version, they had this uh, um, an exhibition in Colorado Springs at the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center, and this exhibition was designed uh, by Herbert Beyer, who was living in Aspen at that time. Uh, Herbert Beyer, you know, being one of the more famous. Um, you know, contributors to the Bauhaus in, um, in Germany before he moved to, to the United States. Um, Ansel Adams was hired to photograph the site, uh, and so, so was William Garnett, who's not as famous as, those, as say, like Ansel Adams, but was one of the very first aerial photographers. So, you know, they brought these people in. They put you know to put together this exhibition. They made the, you know they made the exhibition. And uh, the chief of staff of the Air Force at the time really liked the project, and he was for it. So in, you know, military tradition, everybody else in the Air Force kind of fell in line and didn't really say anything. Um, and But there were people in Congress when this went, to, went before Congress. There were congressmen who spoke out, you know, 
like against it or you know serious problems with it. It turned out later a lot of them. It turned out had you know had special interests in mind. So yeah, you know, it's hard to imagine, right? So uh, so glad, glad we're past all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those those days. Um, so for example, there's this guy you know John E. Fogarty from Rhode Island who was uh, you know did had done a lot of work on behalf of. Uh, masons and you know and, and bricklaying unions in Rhode Island, you know, because the first version was almost completely glass and steel. He's you know starts saying that this is un-American and this is like you know doesn't show you know it doesn't doesn't show what this country is all about and you know was lobbying against it or arguing against it not lobbying but he was arguing against it in Congress. So. Um, you know, it's, it was like a super contentious. Probably, then at the same time, by the way, like Frank Lloyd Wright, this is where he comes back into the picture is yeah. that he's invited to testify before Congress. And he tells them that this is a terrible project because he's, you know, the international style was a big, it was, it was like his nemesis. And, yeah. and so he, you know, he, he takes his time before Congress Apparently, to first of all, you know, say that the, the again that the that the project is un-American and that it, that it lacks soul, and uh, but spends something like three fourths of his time explaining what he would do if he were brought back on the project. Um, so clearly, he had some very special interests in mind as well. And that story makes me even appreciate more the project um, and how it got built the way it did, um, because it seems, I mean, looking back, hindsight and from a you know contemporary perspective, it seems so obvious that um, Air Force Academy uh, discipline, which is um, all about increasing technology, about using the kind of fastest, best uh, way of flying, way of building, um, we just walking around the campus, we were seeing student projects that were working on satellites that were going to go into space or, you know, just the kind of amazing uh, culture of technology that is incorporated in part of the Air Force. Um, so to us, it seems like kind of no brainer that their architecture would also be equally progressive and use the latest technology and yeah. construction technology at that time coming right out of World War II. You know, all of the steel uh, manufacturing that America had built up during that time was now being able to re- be repurposed um, towards architecture and so um, now it makes a kind of perfect narrative um, so yeah. but it's interesting you know things are never quite as easy as as we would think yeah I mean I think a lot of it you know looking you know looking at it from some distance now I think a lot of it of course like had to do with perception I mean for, for some people you know modernism was uh, uh, you know too generic like yeah it didn't it didn't express enough the importance of of the academy, um, you know, in the way that maybe classical or, you know, Gothic architecture, like at the other, you know, West Point or Annapolis, you know, like those places, yeah. like they, they, they had a, like an older tradition of architecture that was the, defining those campuses, which, which had already had an established value, you know, that seemed to exceed modernism to a lot of people, um, at that time. So it was kind of like, you know, the, the, I guess it's a sort of like the same argument that they made against the chapel. Mm-hmm. That this like reduces the chapel to kind of like you know a neutral status. It's the same as everything else. Like now, if, if the chapel shares the same architectural expression as a dormitory, does that you know are, are we saying that that those two are more or less equivalent in terms of their status in the world? Um, I think maybe that the, a larger version of that argument was made about the whole thing. You know, that, that if this is you know, architecture that's good for an office building in Manhattan, is that really, you know, enough for 
this really important singular, you know, U.S. military uh, academy. You know what I mean? Like, like it was, was it was it a was it significant enough? Did it express enough of value or whatever? Where to other people, it was clean and disciplined and uh, high tech and progressive. You know, so so it's kind of you know had that I think, you know modern architecture had that sort of double identity, and that was part of what I think someone was really like struggling with or, or dealing with. Although they dealt with it very very well, and it doesn't seem like they you know had to compromise much on, you know in any direction in the end. But um, but yeah, I mean it, it's it's kind of yeah I, I think that must have been tough. So you actually spend, um, you sort of split some time of your professional life, say, um, between Chicago and Denver. So you're teaching in Chicago and you're practicing architecture here in Denver. Um, I'm curious, and, you, and you've kept that up for quite a while. Um, and, and how do you find that to be kind of productive for either the teaching or the practice? You know, um, yeah, how do you find to be kind of engaged in an architectural community in Chicago, which is so robust, and then Denver, which is a completely different kind of context. Um, I mean, for me personally, and I think it's different for lots of people, but for me personally, it's a it's a good setup because um, you know Denver is kind of you know outside the the discourse for the most part, and so that comes with uh, or provides some opportunities. Like for example. You're, you're not really like, nobody's really paying attention to what anybody's doing here so you can you can you can try things you can do things you can build projects or whatever do whatever you're doing and uh, you know if it doesn't turn out well it's not a problem I mean you don't have like a lot of people kind of gossiping about like how how you know what a failure some one of your projects was so that is makes it I think a lot easier to practice here um uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like that. It's it's kind of nice to be to be an outsider in that regard. Um, Chicago, on the other hand, uh, like has just such an amazing group of people, and I just love going there to see what they're doing. Um, you know, to talk about work and whether that's it through the studio work or their, you know the work that they're doing in their in their practices. I and mean, it's just it's and then you know it has the institutions that really support that and and so and those institutions museums the gram you know all of all of those actually you know produce a lot of the discourse in chicago too which i don't know if, if a if certainly an older generation an older maybe mainstream generation of chicagoans might not see discourse as the most important you know might not see for example like you know writing discussions, lectures, exhibitions as the most important forms that architecture takes. For them, I think it's the buildings of the city yeah. um, that really form the, the basis of what that defines what architecture is for them. Uh, but now I think that's you know, there's still some, some nice projects being done there and some great work, but I think it's also become a leader in, in, you know, in discourse, in architectural discourse, and I think that's that's great to be a part of. Like, it's just good to be able to go there and talk to people about what they're up to and to kind of, you know, find out what people are interested in and how they're thinking about things these days. I mean, that's, that's not something you can do in Denver. So, 
Yeah, so I appreciate it for that reason. Paul Anderson, thank you so much for joining us on our walking tour of the U.S. Air Force Academy. The campus is incredibly impressive, and we highly recommend a visit to experience its size and connection to the state's natural landscape. For images of the campus and specific buildings we discussed, visit our website. For Eric Herman, I'm Ashley Bigham. Thanks for joining us. SciVisit is hosted by Ashley Bigham and Eric Herman of Outpost Office and is produced by Matthew Shulman.